John 4, starting at verse 4. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as he did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one you are one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want, or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? This is the Gospel of the Lord. Well, uh, in 2018, my life changed forever because I became a dad uh, to a little girl. Uh, three years ago, actually this week, we just had a lovely couple of birthday parties celebrating Rosie over there, aka Rainbow Cat, as she is currently choosing to be known. Uh, having, having kids in your life who you get to help raise, that's a weighty responsibility for anyone, right? Uh, helping to raise a girl, though, I feel like that's a little bit more weighty. Because I know that being a woman in our world is often not as happy an experience as it could or should be. And what I know is just kind of head knowledge is something that many of you experience personally, day in, day out. Life as a woman in our culture can be a challenge. 
It's a sad thought for me that Rosie will face all sorts of struggles simply and purely because she is a woman. However, I am convinced that the Christian faith will not be part of the problem for Rosie. I'm convinced that she'll be better off as a Christian, better off trusting Jesus, better off knowing Jesus, better off belonging to God's church. And you know, it's not just the whole like forgiveness of sins and eternal life thing, but it's in the here and now as well. In these 80 or 90 years, spending them following the Lord Jesus will be good for Rosie. Good for Rosie because Christianity is is radically pro-women, radically good for women. A liberating thing, not an oppressing thing. Now, does does that statement cut a bit against the grain? It absolutely cuts against the grain. The common thread that you'll find weaving its way through the media, through Hollywood, through pop culture, through our politicians, through our academics, is that Christianity is one of those things in the world that is hard and fast opposed to women. It likes to make life hard for women, sets women back and stuffs women up. I hear all of that and and I, I get the criticism. There probably is a little kernel of truth buried away there in the middle because there have been times where God's church has read the Bible poorly, and therefore fallen into poor practices when it comes to the women of our world. At the same time, I know that this is certainly not everybody's experience of Christianity. I know that that across history and to this day, in in profound and powerful and life-changing ways, that Christianity lifts women high and treasures them and values them like they should be. I've been pondering the last couple of weeks, what am I going to teach Rosie as she grows? What am I going to be teaching her to understand about being a woman? What am I going to teach her about how Christianity makes life better for her as a woman? I've thought of three big things that I really want to get across to my little girl. The first one is that her value is grounded by God. Now, the Bible opens, if you've ever read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, with some very bold claims about all sorts of different things to do with our world and our place in it. And one, one of these bold assertions that we should pay close attention to and really treasure is that it says that our value as humans is given to us, gifted to us, pronounced upon us by our God. That our value is, is intrinsic, it's inbuilt because we have a relationship with our Creator, we bear His image. We're made by Him, we're wanted by Him, we matter to Him. That should mean, by extension, that we matter to everybody. For we're all in this together. this, This statement in the Bible about all humans bearing the image of God and having an inbuilt dignity and value as a result, it is a very deliberate, very clear pushback against the idea that our value comes from our strength, you know, survival of the fittest style. Or that it comes from our intelligence, or our age, or our looks, or our talents, or our wealth. All these things that we, are things that we tend to look to and think, that makes a person more important to me, more valuable to me. The Bible wants to hear that and push back hard and say, actually, your value depends on none of that. This is something we should treasure for all sorts of different reasons. But we should treasure it today for the impact it has on the women in our world. This is something that I want for Rosie to know and love and and treasure about her faith and her relationship with God, that it declares boldly to our world that her value has diddly squat to do with what she has to offer others. That message really matters because, sadly, the objectification of women is just the air we breathe. You know, valuing women 
not for who they are, but for what they look like, the shape of their bodies, for their sexuality. That, that kind of mindset seeps into us all and it affects the psyche of women everywhere, fe- feeling as though you're just an object for the, for the sexual satisfaction of men. It, it leads to women viewing themselves through the lens of how others think about them. Am I pretty enough? Is my body in the right shape? Am I wearing the right clothes, the right makeup? Be- because my value, according to the world, is so often tied to my beauty. And on the flip side, this whole brokenness in how we view one another, it affects men in a terrible, horrible way. The whole spectrum of sexual abuse, the ogling and the wolf-whistling and the the groping and and rape. This has become a thing that tragically affects the vast majority of women in our society. Things are broken. But Christianity comes in and steps forward and challenges that status quo. It declares the preciousness of women, not because of what image they are able to project, but because of the image that God has painted on them. It gives women the knowledge that they are more than just who others think that they might be. This is, this is a God-driven assertion, and it has become the basis upon which our culture has this longing that it has for equality and respect. And, and we as Christians, we hold the keys to that car. We as Christians, we sit at the bedrock of human rights. Rights for women and men held together equally. Are, are women different to men? Yes, that's clear for all to see. And the Bible says that it's deliberate, it's not a mistake. But it's not a difference that says that women are deficient or lesser or need the validation of men. Male and female, together, reflecting the image of God is the vision of the Scriptures. And that makes a difference. That's one thing that I'm really keen for my Rosie to know, that her value is grounded by God. Another thing that I really want for Rosie to know is the Bible has big expectations for her. I hope that Rosie's going to grow up and want to love love reading this book. And as she reads it, she's going to see that it has some big things to say to her, for her. A couple of examples comes to mind. Uh, Take Eve, the the Adam and Eve kind of Eve, the first woman. Uh, She's famously described in those opening chapters of the Bible as being Adam's helper. And that that word helper is a word that comes loaded up with baggage for us, right? You know, we're picturing the, the meek, downtrodden, domestic servant... The person whose role in life is only to make sure that the dinner's provided on time. We snap to that because of the way our world and Hollywood has portrayed things for such a long time, but, but it's entirely the wrong idea. But because that word helper is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe God. It's actually mostly used to describe God. It's used to describe how He cares for us, how, how we couldn't possibly live without Him. What is, we are being told about Eve in the opening chapters of the Bible, is that Eve is mission critical. Eve is needed. Another person that Rosie will meet as she reads the Bible is the, one of the most dauntingly ideal role models in all, in all the Scriptures, the person in Proverbs 31. You know, this hard-working, savvy, loving, perceptive, clever person. She benefits the lives of so many people in her world. Others rely on her. The Bible puts her forward as an encouragement to any of us, but I think especially to the women amongst us, women of faith. This is just the tip of the iceberg. Yesterday, I started chatting to Alison about this little bit, and uh, she she started rattling off this list of all these women who she loves from the Scriptures, loves getting to know. 
loves looking at and seeing these are the people I want to aspire to be like. Here's the list. I need to take a deep breath. Sarah, Miriam, Deborah, JL. There's one to look up. Cracking woman. Uh, Ruth, Naomi, Abigail, Holder, Esther, Mary, Anna, Mary, another one, Martha, Salome, Lydia, Priscilla, Timothy's mother and grandmother. In fact, all the mothers and grandmothers, right? The, the point is, are women different to men? Yes. Does the Bible say that there's to be this expectation of differences in how some relationships work out in terms of leadership? Yes. Is that a bad thing? No. Are women expected to just be diminutive and fade into the background? No. The Bible has big expectations for my Rosie. She isn't just a forgotten person, insignificant and unimportant to God and what he's doing in the world. And I want her to know that. One last thing that I really want for Rosie to to learn and have sink into her deep is that Jesus changed her life for the better. I want Rosie to to know just how much Jesus has changed her life, how, how Jesus' valuing of women has changed her world for the better. Because Jesus, Jesus set foot into a world where women were not routinely treated with the respect that we now know they deserve. And he chose to make some very bold, clear statements about that. You know, at a time where, where women were usually held at arm's length by religious leaders and teachers, Jesus said quite the opposite. He welcomed women in. We know that women were included in his closest circle. We know from Luke chapter 8 that, that Jesus' ministry was bankrolled, was financed by a bunch of well-to-do female friends, Mary, Joanna and Susanna. Jesus was happy to rely on them to provide for his needs. A radical statement at the time. Jesus went out of his way to teach the women of his world. You know, his message was clearly not just for the men who were around. Men were used to doing all the learning, but Jesus said, women, you are welcome to come in and learn from me. We see Mary, the sister of Lazarus, sitting at his feet, lapping up what he has to say. You notice as you read through Jesus' parables that he uses images and metaphors that appeal to both men and women at different times. He wants for them to listen. He wants for them to learn. He knows that they are listening to him and that he wants them to listen. Sally read for us from John chapter 4 about Jesus ministering to that Samaritan woman. You know, the disciples have gone off, they're doing a little shopping trip down to the plaza or something, and, and, and Jesus, on his own, goes up and talks to this woman, a Samaritan woman. He opens her eyes, he changes her life. And then the disciples, they come back and they're shocked, they're like, what are you doing, Jesus? A Samaritan and, and a woman? It does not compute, for, because for them this is a very strange thing, but Jesus is saying No. These barriers are to be broken down. Women matter to God. It's interesting that 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 woman, that Samaritan woman, she is the first person in John's Gospel who gets Jesus' identity revealed to her. She finds out that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus has a habit of doing that to, to women. Jesus entrusts the first knowledge of his resurrection to a bunch of his female friends. Mary, his mother, is entrusted with the knowledge of what happened in the lead up to his birth and his birth and then tells it to the rest of the church. Women are an integral part of his story. In a world where where women were routinely written off and largely ignored, Jesus showed that women were important, part of the team, important to him and valued by him. I want for Jesus to be known by Rosie in that way, as her saviour, but also as someone who has said, you are welcome. It's no surprise that 
that women across the centuries have flocked to follow this Jesus. If you and I were to jump in our time machines, go back to first century to to Rome and, and visit one of the local church gatherings, one of the things that would have struck us is the way that there were so many women in the room. We know that, that women made up the majority of ancient churches, which is even more surprising when you consider that in the ancient world, women were actually a minority, because in the ancient Roman culture, a woman, a girl, was less valuable to the family, so they were often, routinely, uh, left to die after birth, because they just weren't needed in the family. That's a terrible thing, brutal and barbaric, but it was kind of normal back in a world that didn't have Jesus on the mind. You can see why then women would have been drawn to, gravitated towards this man and his people and their way of thinking where women are honoured and cared for and respected and valued and protected. Today, women still make up more people in the church. I, I think looking around, I'm doing a quick scan, I think that's probably true today. Now, the average Anglican Christian is, in, is a young African woman. It says something. It says something that billions of women across history have been drawn to Jesus. He is someone they want to be connected with. Christianity's take on women is that they are precious, they are equal, they are different, they are important. That's who you are if you are a woman, that's who my Rosie is and that's why I want for her to know Jesus to take her Bible seriously, to be a Christian. It's because despite, despite all the noise that we hear, Christianity is at its heart, profoundly, and maybe even surprisingly, pro-women. Now, we're joined today by uh, someone who is a little bit of an expert in this area. Ruth Baker is a member of Grace West Anglican Church down in Glenmore Park, down in Penrith. And she's been doing some work to kind of debunk some of the myths about the Bible and uh, particularly uh, its anti-women leaning. And uh, so I'm going to invite Ruth to come on up. You can join me on one of these microphones. And let's give her a little clap to say, welcome. Maybe you take that one. That'll work for us. Ruth, yes. thank you so much for coming up Thank you. Uh, thank you for noting I am an expert. I am a woman. I've been a woman all my life. <laughs> so I'm qualified to speak for all my people. <laughs> uh, Ruth, I, I gather that you've just come back from holidays. I did, yesterday afternoon. And it went, it was good? It was beautiful. It was beautiful, but the house just looks like a laundry monster has vomited all over the place now. So. <laughs> I know that feeling, yeah. yeah. Well, I hope you get, uh, get to get that back in order when you get back home. But thank you for coming up to join us today. No, thank you. Uh, and thanks for uh, arranging to leave your boys and... Thank you just for making Yeah, I left them some food and a dog bowl, so I'm sure they're, <laughs> I'm sure they're fine. Um, thanks for joining us. Um, yeah. Can you start by just sharing maybe something of your experience of being a Christian and being a woman? Um, has it always been easy? No. Um, and I don't think I'd be alone when I say that we would all have hit some kind of sexism or, or misogyny. And it's, it's worth actually just saying that there's different degrees of of misogyny. We, when we say the word misogyny, which is banded around a lot these days, um, we imagine it to be that very vocal, very vitriolic, somebody screaming at you mm. or doing something, you know, just very, very uh, obvious. Um, there's benevolent sexism, which is that very infantilizing women as children, 1950s, your place is in the kitchen mm. type sexism. Uh, there's hostile sexism, which is that kind of very vocal, vitriolic scream at you kind of sexism and then there's misogyny which is more of a kind of underlying uh, belief system mm. 
that uh, women are just inferior, not just different, but inferior. Uh, and that colors every be belief, behavior, attitude yeah. to, to women. So I have faced that in my life as a Christian and in, in secular settings. Um, I've been screamed at, had very horrible things mm. said to me, shouted at me. I've had a meeting with an engineer, a male engineer who wouldn't even talk to me, would only talk to the man in the room. Uh, I was sexually harassed when I was uh, younger by a client, and when I went to my manager, he told me I should be flattered by that, which is lovely. Mm. Um, was offered lesser pay for the same work as men, because at the time I had a husband, so why would I need more money? Um, and um, uh, there's a meeting that we were both in, actually, and I hasten to add here that it was not Tom that did this, um, but uh, there was like 10, 12 other guys and me as the only female, and one of the men there thanked me for the morning tea. Um, it was actually my senior minister who'd organized the morning tea, um, and it was not meant at all to be se a sec yeah. It was not, he, he didn't mean it maliciously at all, but what it said to me was that um, that's what's expected of a woman. Mm. Uh, you don't have, the men do the real work and the real talk and you do the morning tea. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's horrible. Yeah. It's horrible. It's something that you carry a lot. Um, the, the claim is often made that there is this direct link between the Bible and that sort of misogyny. Can you see that link? I, I can. I can see how people have put two and two together and got five. Mm -hmm. um, I can see how people have taken things out of context. Uh, I can see how people can sometimes, unfortunately, deliberately take things out of context because it fits their worldview or it's convenient for them. Uh, I can see how something very beautiful that God offers is then very imperfectly applied. Like, I'm a complementarian. I know you are as well, Tom. Um, it, when you see that in its biblical setting, is a very beautiful truth. In application, that can be very flawed because we're all human. Um, so, yeah, I can see how things have just culturally snowballed. Mm. Um, yeah, and so has become something that's not there. You've been doing the, the wider church a favor, I think. You've been writing a blog where you've been working through some difficult passages, really, and kind of passages that are, that are often put forward as difficult for women and sort of as evidence of here's the Bible being very anti-women. And you're kind of picking it through and going, actually, if you read it carefully, it's not quite the case. I know you've got an example ready for us. I Would do. Would you be happy to share one? Yes, yeah. I do. If you want to share that, it's from... Um, 1 Corinthians 7. Which I preached four. on last year, so everyone should know, right? All yes. over it. Yeah. <laughs> and normally, this is the point where all the air gets sucked out of the room as everybody kind of goes, oh, where's she going to go with this? Um, but this is the, uh, you, if you preached on it, you would, I would hope people remember, but yes, it's, I haven't got my far-sighted glasses on. Which you do you re oh, great, yes. <laughs> husband shall fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to the husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. This is a classic in our society. This is what uh, the media likes to hold up as proof positive that the church and the Bible and God are just raggedly misogynist. Um, and unfortunately, it has been used for very poor purposes in the past. It has been used by uh, husbands. It's been used, unfortunately, by some ministers, um, you know, to, to encourage the wife, to tell the wife, uh, to be sexually available whether she wants to mm. or not. Uh, and that's certainly the, the runaway story in, in the media as well. So um, previously as a women's minister, but also then as a writer and blogger, uh, people have sort of come to me with this and said, we don't know what to do with it. It's Either it's been used against them or somebody has hit them with it that they're talking to that just says, ha-ha, this is the smoking gun. This is, mm. 
this is what proves the point. And so you have to kind of get down into the weeds and go, right, is this? Mm. Yeah, and it's, it's a really dicey situation. Like, I did a lot of prayer before I went into it because it was actually like this, if this says what I'm hoping it doesn't say, I have to learn to be okay with that. Yeah. And, um, well, thankfully, spoiler, it, it doesn't say what culture says it is, but it, it took quite a process of peeling back some, some layers. So mm. I'll just show you a, a, a little slice of some of the work that I did. This is, um, the first thing I did was looked at the English. Pfft, that was a stupid thing to do. Uh, because from what you can see here is even from two different translations, um, you can read things quite differently. Uh, the NIV says, husband shall fulfill his marital duty. The ESV says the husband shall give his wife her conjugal rights. Uh, verse 4, the NIV says, wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. ESV says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Those can be read quite differently. And so it leaves you in a bit of a pickle. So, well, what, what do I actually do with this? So that's when you sort of go to the next layer, the original Greek that it was written, written in. Um, and you'll see there where I've just highlighted some of the key terms. Of course, when you peel back all the English, the Greek is, is the same. It's, it, that's the original language it was written in. And I'm assuming that you're all Greek speakers in, in the room. I know I am. But just in case there's a small child here who does not yet know their ancient Greek, um, if you don't mind going to the next one. Um, so one of the key terms is that, you know, you, the giving of something. And it's, uh, it's better read as, as you render something to mm. someone. It's the same word that Jesus uses um, when somebody asks him, uh, do we pay taxes to Caesar? And he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and, and render to God what is God's. So there is a sense of a debt of something owed, but it's about the willingness of the giver. It's not about uh, the recipient demanding something. That's absolutely not yeah. the emphasis of, of that word or this passage. Um, the second key word is conjugal rights or marital debt, both terms which make me kind of ugh, hate those terms. Um, they make me cringe, but the way that we read it you know, like we're looking at this passage and reading into it our own assumptions mm. that this is about, you know, giving men a carte blanche to, to demand sexual rights. When you actually look at marital sex in the context of scripture, it's dealt with very differently. Mm. Um, and even in the Old Testament here, if, if uh, a man marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. It's something that is uh, given within a marriage context to honor the relationship. Um, and again, it's about something that is bestowed freely by the giver, and it's not about demanding. So that kind of really shifts how we, we look at this passage and, and what assumptions we make about it. So if you don't mind going to the next one, this then feeds into we're looking at the wrong bit. We look at the bit where we're reading into it. You know, this is, this is sexist, it's misogynist. The bit that we should be looking at is the mutuality. And it's this, the marital duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority, yields it to her husband in the same way the husband does not have authority. That's really unusual in its cultural setting at the time. And when something is so countercultural like that, it, it, it actually fills me with a lot of confidence. Like, well, why say that unless it was true? Yeah. And even John Calvin, the great John Calvin, may his name forever be praised, um, <laughs> in his own commentary, he even raises this question of like, well, if, 
if man is the head of the house and if man is the head of the family, why on earth is there such a big point about the mutuality of authority in the marriage mm. bed? Um, and I think it's really key that it, why that's the case is that that's the most vulnerable, um, intimate setting for a man and wife. And yet Paul is at pains mm. to make this clear. Um, and so I think that then amplifies everything that you were talking about, Tom, which is everything else in the Bible that says women are equally of value. Uh, and this amplifies everything else that we see in the Bible about um, the, the husband being the kind of person um, to whom the wife wants to give freely. Um, and so this not only doesn't say what culture says it says, but it actually amplifies everything else that mm. we read. And I think that's a really key point, is that the Bible is internally consistent. When we read something or when um, culture tells us something that the Bible says, if it's not consistent with the rest of the Bible, that's a major clue mm. that we're stumbling over something. So that's a very, very quick thumbnail sketch. Uh, but that's what I've been doing with a lot of these passages is just trying to strip away and get into the weeds of what's it actually saying yeah. so we can have confidence about um, what, what we know and what we believe and why we believe it. It's really helpful. Thank you, Ruth. Um, yeah. If you want to hear more from Ruth on exactly this kind of topic, then I'd really encourage you to come along this Arvo to the Women's Afternoon Tea, where Ruth is going to be going into more detail, more examples, more passages, and there's also a good chance for a Q&A as well and a bit of back and forth. So um, thank you, Ruth. Thanks for coming up. Let's give Ruth a clap to say thank you. And uh, let me lead us in prayer before we have our last song. Father in heaven, we are glad that your word speaks truth into our lives. It challenges the status quo. It challenges the ugliness that our sinful hearts drive us towards. Uh, in this particular case, it, it challenges the idea that there is some sort of uh, inherent deficiency in women. It challenges the idea that men have some sort of right to be dominant. Uh, Lord God, we pray that you would make us as people who follow Jesus, uh, those who are willing to submit to your word and, uh, and be taught by it, be shaped by it, be made into those who love one another well. Thank you, Lord, that the young women of our church get to grow up into a faith that is good for them, uh, that honours them and loves them. We pray, Lord, that that would happen for our young women. We pray also that the older women of our church would be a wonderful uh, encouragement and example to the young women of our church. Lord, thank you that we are made in your image and that we are loved by Jesus, uh, one and all. Uh, thank you that we can all come to you together through the cross. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.